morning, brothers and sisters. How are we all doing today? Uh, I'm excited today. It's a, it's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to preach the gospel. And so, preach the gospel we will do today uh, from Acts chapter 13, verses uh, 13 to 41. This is a message that I'm calling the gospel of Paul, according to Paul. Uh, before we get into it, let's say a word of prayer. Uh, Lord God, we do ask you uh, to bless this word today. Lord, you promise that your word never returns to you void, and we, we just proclaim the gospel here, Lord, and we pray that uh, people will believe it, and we pray that people will live it, Lord. So help us to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I lived to play baseball. I loved baseball. It was my entire life. I knew everything there was to know about baseball. But then when I became an adult and a parent, uh, I had a daughter, and she wanted to play softball, which was a little bit new to me, but not so new. Uh, because, you know, the rules of baseball and the rules of softball are pretty similar, and if you know something about baseball, it's not too hard for somebody to explain the differences in the rules between baseball and softball to you. But if I had grown up in a place where baseball wasn't played, uh, I would have no idea. And if somebody was going to try and explain that to me, they'd have to start with the absolute basics, and they'd have to go really, really slow, uh, just trying to explain to me the very, very simple parts of, of, uh, of softball based on my uh, lack of knowledge. And, and so one of the amazing things we see as we watch Paul journey through uh, his missionary journeys is that uh, he has to kind of tailor his message to different audiences based on the amount of knowledge that they have. And we see him do that uh, over and over again, and, and, and the gospel never changes, but the way he presents the gospel to different people uh, does change. And in our passage today, he's going to be talking to Jews and to God-fearers, and they know God, they have the Bible, they understand their Old Testament, and so he can preach to them uh, in a particular way based on the knowledge that they have. Later in Acts, He's going to be preaching to pagans who have absolutely no concept of even uh, a monotheistic God. And so he's going to have to completely change his approach when he speaks to them. But for today, we're going to study uh, Paul's sermon to Jews and God-fearers that he delivers in Pisidian Antioch, uh, which is located in Asia Minor. Uh, but before we get to the sermon itself, we have a few verses of background and setting to discuss. So first we're going to read verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after, reading of the law, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Last week, we looked at the conversion of Sergius Paulus, right? The, uh, the proconsul or the governor of the area of Paphos on western uh, Cyprus. And, and after, it says in verse 12, uh, he believed, seeing what the Lord had done, we have nothing but white space, right? We, we're not told what happens next. And uh, I would love to know the conversations that happened between Paul and Sergius Paulus after Sergius Paulus believed. Uh, wouldn't you love to know what happened to him and... and and the reason I raise this is because the next thing that happens is that Paul moves on to this place, to Perga in Pamphylia. And I'll show you a map here. Uh, he moved from 
Paphos here up to Perga, which is in this region called Pamphylia. And so it's about 100 miles as the crow flies. There's no particular reason for him to go there at all, except that uh, many scholars, and one noted scholar in particular, claims that this was Sergius Paulus's idea. He says, Sergius Paulus had a lot of family located in that area of Pisidian Antioch, and he wanted his family to hear the good news. And so Paul, on the suggestion of Sergius Paulus, may have gone into Pisidian Antioch. And, and if that's true, uh, this scholar says that Christianity entered Roman Asia on advice of the highest society. And I just think if that's true, that's just amazing how God works in his providence, how he gets his word to where he wants his word to be taken. And so they set out for Perga with Pisidian Antioch as their goal. And the party had been known up till this point as Barnabas and Saul. But now Paul has kind of assumed leadership of this group. And now you see that they're called Paul and his companions. Paul is now the leader of the group. And as soon as they got to Perga, we're told that John Mark abruptly left them. And, and Luke doesn't tell us why. Uh, but scholars, of course, have no shortage of opinions. Uh, one scholar says that he was homesick. Uh, another one says that he was unhappy that Paul had taken leadership over from Barnabas, who happened to be John Mark's cousin. Uh, another one said that perhaps he was unhappy that, that now the gospel was being preached to Gentiles. Uh, but I don't think any of those things is true. Uh, we're not told anywhere that he is, uh, that, that he is homesick. We don't, we don't get that from anywhere. And, and Barnabas himself doesn't seem to be at all disappointed that Paul has taken over leadership of this group, and nor does he seem disappointed that the gospel is being preached to Gentiles. Uh, he's following right along with Paul, and that's what he wants to see done. So I really think that, that what happened was that, Paul, or, uh, that Mark just lost his courage. Uh, when we go further into Acts chapter 15, uh, we see that on the second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along with him. But verse 38 says, Paul did not think it wise to take John Mark with him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And deserted means that he left them for no apparent reason except for perhaps a loss of courage. And so uh, we don't really know why he left, but we are going to see the redemption story of John Mark as we move later into the book of Acts. What I want you to see here in this little section is Paul's absolute determination to bring the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. When you look at verse 14, it says, From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. And if I show you this on this 2D map, what do you see? He's just got a little hike, right? Just uh, it looks like about two inches on the map, right? Uh, but if I, if I showed this to you in 3D, you'd see something completely different. If I, if I tell you that Perga was located in a hot, marshy area along the seacoast, but that uh, Pisidian Antioch was 100 miles north, over 3,600 feet of, uh, above sea level, and that you had to cross the Taurus Mountains to get to Pisidian Antioch, well then your perspective on how difficult this journey was completely changes, right? This is what Paul was up against. And then there is the matter of Paul's physical health. Did you notice that Luke doesn't mention any ministry at all in Perga? He landed at Perga, he moves on right to Pisidian Antioch. Why? Well, soon after this first missionary journey, Paul got back from the missionary journey and he wrote the letter to the Galatians. 
the letter to the Galatians is uh, the letter to the churches that he established on this first missionary journey that were all located in southern Asia Minor, which is known as Galatia. And in Galatians 4.13, he says, it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. And several scholars believe that the illness that Paul is referring to there is some form of malaria that he contracted that was aggravated by being in the lowlands and being in the heat. And so symptoms would include headaches, like a, a red-hot bar thrust through your skull is how those symptoms were described by first-century physicians. And uh, so there were periods of time where Paul would be absolutely incapacitated by, this, uh, by these symptoms, if that's exactly what he had. And for this reason, uh, Paul had to rush from these lowlands of Perga, where it was hot, uh, to get into the higher, more mellow climates of Pisidian Antioch in the higher ground. And it's possible that this is the thorn in the flesh that Paul said, uh, please, God, remove this. And he said three times to God in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul is dealing with some kind of physical malady, and this may be it. He may have been in very poor health as he's making in this, on this journey. And then there's the matter of danger to Paul. Uh, the Taurus Mountains were notorious for robbers hiding out in these crags and these cliffs uh, and ambushing people and beating them up, killing them, taking all their money. And you can see that these are snow-covered mountains, so there is a lot of danger from floods as this ice and snow uh, would melt. And so he's in danger from floods and robbers. And, of course, we know from 2 Corinthians 11, he says, uh, that he was in danger from floods and robbers and all kinds of things. And of all the journeys we know about of Paul, this particular trip from Perga to Pisidian Antioch is the most likely trip that he was referring to when he was talking about being in danger from floods and from robbers. Uh, and so as we think about all these things, I want you to notice that there is not one hint that Paul ever thought of turning back from this journey that he was on. Uh, despite the fact that he was in danger from robbers and in danger from floods and that he was perhaps physically ill and that he had to deal with desertion and that he had to deal with this difficult terrain. And so this was a difficult journey for Paul. And so I'm going to ask you the question that tortured me all week. What lengths am I willing to go to? What lengths are you willing to go to? to share the gospel with someone, to see someone else be saved. Look what Paul did, and he's just getting started on his first missionary journey here. Uh, I can be reluctant to go across the street. I can be reluctant to talk to the uh, clerk at the grocery store. Uh, and that's certainly my life is not on the line, right? Paul is taking his life in his hands every time he goes out to preach the gospel. And so I'm praying for myself to have Paul's grit and determination and desire to see people saved. And I pray that we would all have that kind of grit and determination to want to see other people saved by the good news of the gospel. So in verse 14, they finally arrive at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered into the synagogue and they sat down. Now, in a typical synagogue service, you would have a first a reading from the Law of Moses, then you would have a reading from the prophets, and then if there was somebody there who was qualified to speak, uh, then that person might be invited to get up and give a word of exhortation uh, if they wanted to do that. And undoubtedly, a word had reached the ears of the leaders of this Jewish synagogue that, that Paul, a uh, person who studied under the legendary scholar and teacher Gamaliel, was in the audience. And so uh, having heard that, he was invited 
uh, if he would give a word of encouragement. And of course, this was the very reason why Paul came. He wanted to evangelize these people. And so uh, Paul's about to get up and we'll take a look uh, at his sermon as we get to uh, the sermon itself. Verses 16 to 41, just a few notes about it first. This is the first sermon of Paul's that is going to be recorded in the book of Acts. And, and this sermon should remind us of Peter's sermon uh, to the Jews all the way back in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came uh, because Peter and Paul both presented uh, Jesus as the focal point of history and the fulfillment of the prophets, both blamed the Jews for Jesus' uh, death, both emphasize his resurrection, both cite prophecy, and both have a call to repentance. So we see that in both of these sermons. But this sermon will also remind us of Stephen's sermon when he was about to be stoned to death uh, by the Jews uh, because of the historical survey uh, that Stephen gave that Paul is also going to give. Uh, the difference is that Stephen used Israel's history to convict them and condemn them and to show them that the Jews were always rebellious against the Lord. And, and Paul uses uh, Israel's same history to show them, yes, they're rebellious against the Lord, but God, God's grace is greater than their rebellion. And in fact, despite their rebellion, uh, God fulfilled his promises to Israel in Jesus. And so as we get to the sermon, we'll see that this sermon can be divided into three parts. And the point of the first part is that Jesus is the climax of Israel's history. So let's read verses 16 to 25. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, after he had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul stands up and with a wave of his hand, he commands the attention of this crowd. He addressed them, Jews, and that's, of course, the men of Israel. And then some interested Gentiles, you who fear God, both are in the audience. And then Paul begins his historical survey. But what I want you to see here is that at all times, God's sovereignty and God's uh, grace are stressed. I want you to look at the verbs of this passage as we go through it again. God chose, and then God led, and then God put up with them. And God destroyed seven nations, and God distributed the conquered nation's land, and God gave them judges, and God gave them Saul, and God removed Saul, and then raised up David, and then God brought Israel a savior. God in his sovereignty is in complete control, 
And yet God in his grace did all that he could. He wanted to see Israel blessed and he will bless Israel by its coming savior. And that was his very desire from all of Israel's history to have Israel's history climax in the, in the uh, coming of the savior. And so as we look at this in more detail, starting with uh, the patriarchs, Paul traced the first 1,200 years or so of Israel's history from Abraham to David in just a couple of verses. Verse 17 says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in Egypt, and with an uplifted arm led them out of it. In one verse, he covers about 720 years from 2166, which is when most scholars believe that Abraham was born, all the way down to 1446 uh, when the exodus out of Egypt happened. And then verse 18 begins the next roughly 500 years or so from 1446 to 970 BC, uh, beginning with the wilderness wanderings for 40 years starting in 1446, and then the conquest of the seven nations uh, after they entered into the land of Canaan. Paul says these things took about 450 years, and that would include the 400 years of Israel's captivity, the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and then about 10 years or so of conquest to get to 450 years. And then Paul jumps right into the period of the judges. And during Samuel's time, Israel was not content to be ruled by judges or by God. And so they wanted to have a king like other nations had. And remember that God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, he said, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel gave them Saul to be king over them. And, and then God removed Saul because of his unfaithfulness and disobedience. And he raised up David and made him king in his place. So back to the chronology, uh, we see that uh, Paul skipped a thousand years from the time of David to the time of Jesus to show that Jesus was a direct descendant of David uh, just as God had promised and as was prophesied uh, by 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 12, which is why I asked Mike to read that earlier. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your descendant up after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And verse 16, which says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever. So Paul, using these prophecies to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then he throws in John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25 to show that John was not the Messiah. There were some first century cults who believed that John was the Messiah. Uh, but John himself said that he was the predicted forerunner of the Messiah, just as prophesied by Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 3, which says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So what is the point of all of this historical survey? The, the point is that Paul was showing them, showing the men of Israel that all of its history was planned by God and executed by God to lead up to and climax in Jesus. He came as the prophets promised, and God sent Jesus to be the promised Savior. So what did Israel do with him? Let's look at the second part of Paul's sermon. And the point here is that God fulfilled his promises to Israel in Jesus' resurrection, verses 26 to 37. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us, 
the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So right off, we see that Paul becomes a whole lot more personal with them in this particular part of the sermon because he says uh, he called them brothers and he called them sons of Abraham's family and, and you who fear God, establishing intimacy uh, with his audience. And, and then Paul convicted the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and who actually put Jesus to death for not recognizing Jesus and not recognizing that the prophets spoke of Jesus and then not recognizing that the scriptures that they read in their synagogue services every Sabbath uh, preached of him, and yet they didn't recognize him. And so here are just a few prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus' crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. How about Zechariah 12, 10, 500 years before Jesus came? I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And finally, Psalm 22:16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed my, me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Just a side note, I want you to know that Psalm 22:16 was written about a thousand years before Jesus came, which was long before crucifixion had ever even been invented. And so you have this amazing prophecy of hands and feet being pierced before there ever was known such a thing uh, to mankind. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. Well, there are many other scriptures that I could cite. But one of the best but gods in the whole Bible is verse 30. I love this verse. Though crucified, dead, and buried, but God raised him from the dead. And that is the power of our God. But God raised him from the dead. He raises people from the dead uh, in a physical sense, and he raises us from the dead in a spiritual sense when we believe in his son. And many, including Paul, saw the risen Lord. And so uh, his promise, God's promise to bless the fathers was fulfilled in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And, and, and 
these witnesses, the apostles, were going about preaching that they had seen the resurrected Christ. But not only that, Paul uses the Old Testament to prove that Jesus uh, was resurrected and that his resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And so as we think about that, we have witnesses testifying and we have scripture testifying in the same way. So as you look at verse 33, verse 33 is taken from Psalm 2-7. And so after the resurrection, Jesus was exalted to God's right hand and enthroned as the Son of God. Now, Jesus always was the Son of God, but what's different now is that believers have now recognized him as God's Son and enthroned as the Son of God. And so he is the promised son and descendant of David that was promised in 2 Samuel 7. And then if we move forward then to verse 34, verse 34 is taken from Isaiah 55.3, which also relates to the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7. The holy and sure blessings to David that are referenced there, those are God's promise that he would establish a kingdom that would last forever in David's descendant. And but we know that God's promise was not fulfilled in David because that's why Paul moves on to this last scripture reference, which is Psalm 1610, uh, which we see that's taken from uh, uh, verses 35 to 37 are taken from verses uh, from Psalm 1610. We know that David was buried and we know he's dead and we know where his bones are to this day. Obviously, his bones did undergo decay, but Jesus was resurrected before he could undergo decay. And so he is the one who Psalm 16 refers to. He is the one whose throne is forever. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and his kingdom is everlasting. And Paul wants these Jews to know that. And so that is the end of his testimony. But that takes us to the third part of the sermon, oftentimes the most important part of the sermon, and that is the invitation. Let's read verses 38 to 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so the thing spoken of in the prophets that uh, spoken in the prophets may not come upon you and this is a quote from uh, the first chapter of Habakkuk behold you scoffers and marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days a work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you so in every sermon that I give I try to at least give a basic gospel presentation and an invitation to believe. Every Sunday you hear me say something like, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. I think that's important. I think that's what we do. We proclaim the gospel. And I think Paul thought that that was important too. And so he's proclaiming the gospel here, and he's giving them an invitation to believe. So he's presented Jesus. He's presented his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. So what? What does it all mean? Well, Paul tells them here in these verses, because of Jesus's death and resurrection, that means that forgiveness of sins was available to all Jews and God-fearers who were listening to the sound of Paul's voice at that time, just like it's available to anyone who hears the gospel today. The gospel is good news. Uh, he wants us to know that he who believes is freed from all things that the law of Moses could never 
free them from. And what are those things? Well, the law of Moses could never free us from the penalty of sin that we owe to God because of our sinful lives. Uh, And that's why Jesus came. He came to live a sinless life, a life that we could never live. Uh, And because of that, he was uniquely qualified to serve as our substitute, to receive the sin or the, the penalty for sin that we deserve and to be sacrificed as a substitute in our place. And in exchange, when we place our faith in him, we get clothed in his righteousness so that when God looks at us, our sinful selves, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. That's incredible grace. That is what the gospel is all about. And Paul says, believe and be saved. And so let's think about some applications as we, as we try to digest that gospel. And, and the way I want to go about this is to talk about how we go about proclaiming the gospel. So when proclaiming the gospel, start with what you have in common. Paul was a Jew speaking to Jews. His common ground with them was that they knew their scriptures, they knew their history. No matter who we happen to be speaking to, we will always be able to find some area of common ground. Uh, Everyone has some opinion about God. Uh, Everyone is curious about what happens to them after they die. Uh, So find common ground and steer that conversation toward spiritual matters. And then when you've done that, speak words of conviction, but not words of condemnation. When we explain the gospel, we have to say enough to to make people understand that they are sinners and that they are under God's judgment uh, and that they owe a debt that they cannot pay. But we also have to be careful to show that there is a difference between being convicted of sin and being condemned to everlasting punishment. And the difference is grace. The difference is God's grace. He gives us his grace so we don't have to suffer that punishment. Now, When a murderer is convicted, in Texas at least, normally they're condemned to what? Death, yeah. In Texas, we're a big death penalty state. And so you, if you're convicted as a murderer, that's your condemnation. You're going to go to death. But a convicted sinner does not have to suffer that kind of condemnation. He can choose to accept that someone else has taken his punishment for him. So speak words of conviction, but not condemnation. And when you get that far then share the gospel. Paul showed them that the forgiveness of sin was available to them through Jesus Christ, and he invited them to receive Jesus as their Savior. But he also warned them in verses 40 and 41 not to be scoffers and to perish. If you're a scoffer and you don't believe, you're going to face God one day, and he's going to ask you, what did you do with his son? And if you say anything other than, I believed in his son for my salvation— you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. You're going to find yourself not being allowed to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And and certainly we don't want that for anybody. So our presentation needs to include a gospel presentation with an invitation. And when possible, it should also be coupled with a warning. You can believe and be saved. If you don't believe, you won't be saved and you may face eternal punishment. So I'm praying over the next... uh, few days, we're going to have a couple amazing opportunities in our church. I'm praying that we have opportunities at the breakfast with the parents tomorrow at O. Henry School and, and when we uh, have our back-to-school bash here uh, next Saturday and when we have opportunities to go over to that school and read to the kids and interact with the teachers and the parents and whatever other outreach that God will give us here at Grace Redeemer, I pray that 
we have the opportunity to share the gospel with love, but also with grace, so that those we encounter will make a decision to trust Jesus for their salvation. May the Lord bless our work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a convicting passage. Paul is not shy. He's not bashful. He preaches the gospel for all it's worth. He invites people to believe it, and he tells people what happens to them if they refuse to. Lord, we'll all stand before you one day. And Lord, by your grace, you've given us a means to not have to suffer the penalty that we deserve. And that means is Jesus Christ. If we will accept him as our Savior, we will be ushered into heaven And we will be told, well done, my good and faithful servant, because we have believed. And Lord, I pray that we would all believe that and we would take that message out from outside these walls or from inside these walls to a world that needs to hear it and that we would share this message with grit and determination like Paul did. I pray these things would be so in Jesus' name. Amen.